The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. This is the Nonprofit Hour Show, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. I'm Jason Dennington. On this week's show, we'll be learning about two organizations that are longtime cultural institutions in the Portland metropolitan area. In the second half of the show, Phil Bussey will be speaking to Scott Lewis, executive director of the Northwest Dance Project, which has been creating innovative and provocative contemporary dance performances in Portland for the last 11 years and passes on its legacy to future generations through its dance education programs. But first, Phil speaks to Robin White and Katie Anderson, executive director of the Clark County Historical Museum, about an upcoming exhibit that they have opening in February called One November Morning. The exhibit features emotionally compelling pieces created by Native American artists in representation of the Sand Creek Massacre of 1864, where more than 150 Cheyenne and Arapaho people were massacred in Colorado. Artists represented at the exhibit are descendants of the victims at Sand Creek, and their work focuses on the remembrance, honor, and strength of their ancestors and leaders. Here's Phil Bussey. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I am happy to be joined in the studio today uh, with Katie Anderson, who is the executive director for the Clark County Historical Museum, and with Robin White. Welcome, both of you. Hi. Thank you. Welcome. Glad to be here. Uh, Katie, let's start with you. So the the Clark County Historical Museum, uh, can you just give me, how how long has it been around? What's the history of the Historical (laughs) Museum? So the Clark County Historical Society started in 1917 so the society itself is almost 100 years old in 1964 uh, after people had been collecting artifacts for a while they decided they needed a museum and moved into the original vancouver library um, which was a carnegie library building built in 1909 and the historical society created a museum in 1964 there so we've been in the uh, the building for 51 years now. That's exciting. I, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the building and sorry to get hung up on details, but that that's pretty cool. It I'm, is cool. Yeah, the way that system worked is that um, Carnegie would give money throughout the, the country to build these libraries, but he didn't give the land and he didn't give the books or any money for operations. So the community had to buy in. They had to participate and and provide those elements um, and so a family called the Hiddens um, who owned a lot of property and a, a brick manufacturer gave the land so the building is sitting on what used to be a clay pit um, for making bricks oh interesting and yeah. and we were we were before the interview here we were walking around the uh, Falcon art building a bit yes. and uh, uh, Katie you and and Robin both pointed out that it looks like those were uh, bricks from the Hidden Family. Well, actually, so our building was built in 1909 and then added on to in the 40s. And so there are two different kinds of bricks in our museum. Uh, one are one set, the original, are probably from the Hidden 
family, but the other set is from Ridgefield. So these look more like the ones in Ridgefield. Okay. And so 1917 in, into the into 1964, items are being collected. What sort of items are being collected during that time? We have a really broad range of artifacts and archival material as well. As a matter of fact, uh, we have 15,000 photographic images that are available for people to do research online, and they can just go to our website um, and look under research to, to link to that. Um, so they're the, the papers, newspapers, photographs, manuscripts, um, and then for artifacts, we have an amazing collection of Native American basketry and also beadwork, which is those two exhibits are currently up. Uh, we just opened the beadwork exhibit. It's called Making Beauty and um, some very impressive pieces in there. And um, we have things like artifacts from SPNS Railroad, um, Seattle, Portland, Portland. and uh, Spokane. <laughs> um, so we've got those artifacts. We've got items from the Grant House. Uh, Grant's bed is in, in storage. It's not on display. It's in Ulysses S. Grant. That's right. That's the one. How did his bed end up here? He was actually uh, the, in charge of the uh, Fort Vancouver uh, for a while uh, before, uh, before the Civil War. Uh, so he actually, his residence was there on Officer's Row, and, and therefore we have his bed. I, I did not re realize that. So so when people ask, where did Ulysses Grant sleep? He slept in Vancouver. In a bed. In a bed. Go yes. figure. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's, so it's, it is very, it's fascinating. And then how has the curation changed in recent years? Or has the curation, what your, what uh, Clark County Historical Society and, and what's displayed in the museum, has there been a change in focus from the original intent? There has been, over the last 10 years, there have been a lot more um, temporary exhibits. So trying to focus more on a particular topic. And um, we've done some things like uh, Vet Ink, which was uh, military tattoos. And there was an exhibit about the I-5 bridge. And uh, it was deemed so important they asked to show it at the Capitol so that people would kind of get a sense of the historic you know I'm new to the area I've only been here a year and a half but my understanding is that a lot of the arguments that were had this go-round were very similar to the original building of the bridge exactly history repeats itself and uh, I, I, I think a good thing to point out is that it is changing and I think it's getting back to uh, having the ability to go and use the museum as a touchstone within the community that you can go back and maybe not make some of the mistakes you had before. And even businesses are coming down and using the facilities to really go back and look at some of their roots and uh, see where they came from, the local businesses, and, and uh, trying to get back to that. And I think that's important, um, you know, that, that this is something that can be used on a day-to-day -day basis by the community. It's, it's relevant, uh, it's community building, and it's, uh, it's even business building. Right, that a museum doesn't have to be a, a, a monument to the past, but it can be a, a living uh, organization. That's, that's exactly right. My philosophy about all museums is that they should be relevant for today and not just places to store what we deem is important in material culture. Um, so if we can 
help people have a safe place to talk about uh, difficult issues and look at it through a historical lens, then uh, we've done our job. Yeah. And all of this is really setting up for the exhibit that we're going to talk about after a music break, uh, the Sand Creek Massacre uh, exhibit, which is, which is uh, artistic takes and perspectives on, on an event in 1864. Correct. It's uh, Cheyenne and Arapaho artists got together and created this uh, display called One November Morning. It's incredibly uh, in-depth and heart-wrenching and uh, informational. It, it just sparks so many conversations. Uh, we're just incredibly lucky to have uh, found it and to be able to get it out here in the little hole that it, uh, we were able to get uh, to get it in and uh, it's great. Scheduling. The scheduling yeah. hole, so yeah. And I think that's what we call a teaser because we're going to keep talking <laughs> about the Historical Society before we, we talk about the exhibit. I, I do want to go back a little bit and, and uh, Native American uh, life and tribes were, were have been and continue to be a an important defining part of culture north of the Columbia River. What were the tribes, uh, and and can you give me some of the the context of Clark County before it was Clark County? Well, that that's uh, pretty broad. Uh, <laughs> as, as well as, as as you know, I mean, the reason that Portland's here and the reason that we're here is because of the river. Uh, you know, I mean, really, uh, that that transportation corridor is it wasn't a trading corridor. So things from north and south came up through the, the valleys uh, and from the ocean and, uh, and came up the river all the way to Canada. Uh, you know, the same thing is true today. Those same, uh, same businesses basically are doing the same thing except uh, with a little bit different tweak and, and the natives aren't doing all of it. Uh, but that's the reason the fort was set up here and why it, it thrived for so long. Uh, so you have the Kalapuyas, the Nez Perce, the Umatillas, the uh, Chinook, the Cowlitz, uh, a lot of different tribes that uh, that came here. They had a the Chinook Wawa, which was a trading language. And of course, the salmon and the eel were a huge part of that culture and really a huge part of what we're doing today and a huge part of why the river is actually being saved. Uh, why the water quality is is to where we can actually sometimes swim in it. Uh, you know, we still got to work on it, but really the uh, the sovereignty of those tribes and the treaty rights have really kept that uh, from becoming just a, another cesspool and losing that uh, extraordinary uh, not only piece of history, but uh, you know, it's food. It's it's a cultural thing for the for the natives here, and it's a business for everybody else. So. Uh, it's, it's it, you know, the, you can't get away from the river. And uh, f strangely, the natives are not gone. They're still here, and they're still making an extraordinary impact on, on the area. And, and in, in terms of the uh, Clark County Hist Historical Society and the museum, uh, that is that part of that story is represented there? Yes, and it's a small museum. So right now we have four changing galleries. And um, two of them, one has the Native American baskets, one has the beadwork, and we also have an exhibit on food history. Um, that's where I learned that we were once the prune capital of the world. I, I just learned that right now, then. <laughs> <laughs> 
So there, there's a very interesting history in that area. And our goal is in the next two years to develop a permanent exhibit that will um, put things into context and tell the story of Clark County. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I am talking with Katie Anderson, who's the Executive Director for Clark County Historical Society and Museum, and with Robin White, who is an artist. When we come back after our first musical break, we're going to be talking about an upcoming exhibit uh, at the Clark County Historical Society. Um, Robin, do you want to take us to the first music break? Well, sure, I'd love to. Uh, you're going to love this. It's uh, called Run to the Hills, and it's by Iron Maiden. And uh, the reason I picked it is because, well, uh, number one, it's, uh, it has to do with Sand Creek Massacre, which I thought was extraordinary. And it's, uh, it's, it was done by what must have been 30, 40 years ago, apparently, because I think that's been a while. And the other reason was is because it's uh, Iron Maiden, which makes it ironic. <laughs> so there you go. And this will wake up all the listeners out there right now. Iron Maiden. <laughs> That was Iron Maiden, and this is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I am joined in the studio with Katie Anderson, Executive Director for Clark County Historical Society, uh, which also manages the museum there. Robin White is an artist uh, in in the region, and uh, welcome, both of you. And and Robin White, why don't you tell me about your history in in the area? and about uh, some of the art that you do, what medium you work in. Well, yeah, so my history here, uh, I, I've been kind of active in the community for quite some time. I was a, uh, I went to school at OHSU. I, uh, I was a paramedic and I was involved in labor organizations. I was a labor leader here. I was in the central labor councils in Oregon and in southwest Washington and the uh, Cowlitz Central Labor Council and on some state uh, committees. And also uh, do a lot of uh, organizing on the community level and, and do a lot of organizing for uh, Indian, uh, uh, Native American Indian uh, issues. Uh, so during the time that I was uh, on the executive board of the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council, I was asked to try and help get a project moving again at the museum. Uh, 
on a remodel project. And, and so, we never let him go. Yeah, it's kind of blood <laughs> in, blood out. They, I've, I've been there ever since. It's been some years. But uh, so I, I, I tend to get involved in uh, more and more projects through the museum. I'm Cheyenne and Lakota, and I'm okay. enrolled at Pine Ridge uh, on the Oglala Sioux Reservation in okay. South Dakota. Okay. And, and and now tell me then about the upcoming and the, the ongoing exhibit. It is Artistic Perspectives on Sand Creek Massacre. Actually, let me, re- let me re-ask that question. Let's start with what was the Sand Creek Massacre? It happened in Colorado. Uh, 1864, uh, tail end of, of the Civil War in the rest of the country, but something else was going on in the West and in the Southwest at that point. Correct. Um, you know, the, this was uh, times when the Civil War was ending. Uh, there was a, kind of an exodus of people into, into the Western part of the United States. Uh, those encroachments were, uh, were pretty hard on the Native tribes. And uh, they kept making treaties. The treaties were broken again and again and again. Uh, the prospectors were coming in. The farmers, the ranchers, uh, just you know, you name it, was coming in. So, and there, uh, there was a there's a lot of tension. And there was a gold rush going on in part is uh, is in in Colorado the in the Correct. 1860s and and certainly in. There wasn't any jobs for the people uh, at after the end of the Civil War. Uh, so they were trying to do prospecting and other things to to uh, to, to survive. I, and uh, so the there was an encampment at Sand Creek, Colorado, uh, of Cheyenne and Arapaho people. Um, the local militia there, run by uh, Colonel Shivington, uh, who was a minister, by the way. Uh, took it upon himself to go down to this camp that was actually flying the United States flag under an agreement with the United States government that they would be uh, non-combatants and protected, and they were also uh, flying a white flag. Uh, the, you, the military scouts waited until the men had left to uh, go hunt uh, the buffalo, and, and uh, they went in and slaughtered uh, upwards of 200 mainly women and children, dismembering them uh, using their genitalia for decorations on their saddles. Uh, they later took uh, took those back, paraded them through town, and uh, uh, and made keepsakes out of them. Uh, you know, uh, killed babies, so on and so forth. Uh, yeah, it, it was absolutely brutal, and and, and also just in terms. Uh, I mean, it was about 10 percent as I understand it, the population of, of that tribe that was wiped out in, that, in, one, in one day, in one, one assault. Correct, of that, of, of that uh, end of the tribe, yes, correct, of the, on the, in southern Cheyenne. And uh, it, it was absolutely incredible. I will say that there were several uh, people under that command who refused to, um, to be part of that slaughter. Um, and not only that, uh, and and a, and a particular doctor who, I think, probably, you know, really took took his own life in danger to to sneak in and help some of the uh, survivors, which I thought was was an extraordinary thing. And and one of those was a relative of mine. I'm I am a descendant of the Sand Creek Massacre. Uh, so uh, those. And- 
those people that did not partake in that actually wrote letters to the secretary of the uh, of the army at the time and expressed their horror at at the murder and the slaughter uh, that was done. And and uh, left an indelible impact on on a on a population on but but not necessarily recognized one would say in hi- in history books. It's almost unknown. Um, and, and I think at, at some point when you start hearing what the artists speak, they, you know, they'll be here to speak about their work. And, and I think that's only right and only proper that they're speaking about their work. And, and the fact that 150 years later we have to do this, you know, we're actually in court. Uh, the Sand Creek Trust is in court, in federal court in Denver, uh, still trying to deal with some of the issues that came out of this, even though the United States government admitted their guilt and admitted that it was murder and an atrocity. There's really been no justice for that in 151 years. So, you know, if, if you ask people in Colorado, if you ask high school kids, or if you ask even university-educated uh, people that have been there all their lives, they really don't know anything about the Sand Creek Massacre. And I, I found that extremely troubling, and particularly when you consider the headlines today, and the things that we're considering of doing, not only here in our country, but overseas that have to do with immigration or with, with uh, Syrians fleeing the, this, the, that horrific war in that country and, and the way that we, we treat our own citizens and uh, immigrants and you know just so many things this touches on. And, and it's our responsibility to go back and look at this because we are doing the same things. We are repeating that history and we can't do that. It's, and, and we have to realize that, you know, sitting next to us is that Cheyenne man, is that Arapaho woman who may be a doctor or a plumber or a, or a welder or a, or, or a radio interviewer or whatever, but those are human beings that are with us today. They, they live and breathe, and, but, but their family history has been shadowed by this and 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 by what happened after that that horrid horrid slaughter and 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 after that of chasing those people around from uh southern colorado through nebraska kansas south dakota wyoming montana and the continuing slaughter at washita four years later at at uh, Wounded Knee, at all these places, was it was a running slaughter, and and the actual uh, policy of the United States government was extermination. That was a policy of the United States government. We can't have that happen again. And 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 that that is as you were talking about earlier, part of the mission of Clark County Historical Society or Historical Society is history should be. Uh, a learning lesson and and that these should not just be something pushed uh, into into the past absolutely, absolutely. and and that art should be a part of that doing we, we should be waging art not war and and what what story does that art tell and what 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 part what is history what is art art is history art is, art is a permanent history or a semi-permanent history depending on on your art and, and, and art can also be in an emotional history in a way that sometimes is not as literal as what would be maybe in a textbook. And, and so six artists have been commissioned to, to give perspectives. Is that right? So, <clears throat> excuse me. So this exhibit has kind of evolved over time. And um, 
what will what we will be showing will be three artists and um, two of those artists will be able to come to the opening they'll be here for about a week and they'll be doing programs at the Clark County Historical Museum the Portland Art Museum um, the Washington State University campus Vancouver campus and um, we've got a few other partners that we're talking to to try and get them out to see as many people around the community as possible. And we're, lo we're all, of course, looking for more partners, and uh, we're looking for more financing, too. We, uh, Katie was really uh, incredible in, in, uh, in finding this and then uh, bringing it to our attention. Uh, this had been shown at University of Denver, then at Northwestern University, and then is going to the Autry Museum. Uh, but there was a little space in between, and we were lucky enough to just get it. The, that's the good part. The bad part is is we were lucky enough to get it, but we're kind of in between uh, usually the grant cycles for a lot of these things. You have to have a lot of time. We haven't had a lot of that time, so we're definitely looking for uh, any financial support we can get uh, and also for partners that want to uh, be part of this conversation and and to make this a, a larger conversation because there's so much context uh, there's so many people uh, hit this from different angles that it's 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 kind of mind-blowing and we we do have uh, a, a clip from one of the artists talking about uh, his own work and we're going to take a listen to that right now to give a little bit more uh, insight into where he's coming from and what he is uh, portraying for one, I like to, to meet people, and I like to talk about myself and my work, and not only that, but I'm talking about my, my tribe. majority of my subject matter, you know, I'm painting things that would have happened over 150 years ago, and so all I'm doing is just bringing that up to light, using brighter colors and telling a, a story in my way. We're telling a story that not too many people that grow up in Colorado or in the United States really know. It's really sad that people really don't understand the, the history of this country. They just seem to think, oh, it was the good old days. Well, the good old days for some were the bad old days for others. We all need to know where we came from to know where we're going in life. This is Phil Bussey, it's the Nonprofit Hour. I'm talking with Katie Anderson, Executive Director for Clark County Historical Society, and with Robin White, an, an artist. Uh, we are talking about an, an exhibit which is providing artistic perspective and reflection and, and insights into the Sand Creek Massacre, uh, which, is, which happened um, 150 plus years ago uh, in Colorado. Um, how much are, is the Historical Society putting up in terms of explanation and, and how much of this is, uh, how much of this is cerebral and how much of this is emotional in terms of what the interaction uh, you are trying to foster? We will basically have an introductory panel um, to explain to people what Sand Creek was and, and what they're seeing here as far as these are the artists, um, but we don't want to try and interpret uh, the events of the day. Um, we'll use the labels that the artists send us for each of the paintings, and we, what we really want to see are a lot of programs. We want a lot of conversation. 
um, because that's so much better than having a static display. Um, so that's why we're partnering with so many people. From from an art point of view, there there's uh, there's acrylics. Uh, I think there's some watercolors, but there's uh, and and there's everything from a little contemporary to a uh, little bit uh, more classical style. But there's also uh, a part in there that is uh, ledger art, which is an extraordinary thing. And and this began uh, back in the 1800s. Uh, paper was you know we don't, didn't have a lot of paper mills around, so it was hard to get around. But uh, people's old ledgers that they actually kept their books on, there was artwork done on those. Originally, uh, the the particularly Plains tribes used to do a uh, year-end accounting of their history on a and, and they kind of transferred those uh, same drawings that they would do either on that uh, buffalo hide at the end of the air elk hide or uh, on their teepees and so on and so forth and, and put those onto these ledgers and tell the stories. These actually uh, tell extraordinary stories. The, uh, they have, it's, it's kind of like a, a writing uh, and an art at the same time. So uh, those are extraordinary, and and I, I think, you know, for me, I'm I'm going to let the artists and the art tell their stories. I will say though that uh, the Portland Art Museum has was nice enough to uh, come up, and they're going to give some training to the staff on uh, kind of how to handle uh, the the deep aspects of this this thing and, and the emotional aspects of it that probably might happen for some people when they see this uh, because it's 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 like it really is like handling an ancestor it's like handling a, a something delicate and something extraordinarily heartfelt and rendering from the past so it, it needs to be respected and it needs to be uh, it needs to be loved as well. Thank you both for, for coming in and talking about the, uh, both about Clark County Historical Society and specifically about this, this exhibit. It runs February through? Uh, closing date May 28th. And, and I, I very much encourage people to, to go to this exhibit, to support it. Um, it's, it's really, it's, it's a fantastic, uh, that, you both have have brought this to the region and to help tell history and and a history that's not often told so uh katie anderson executive director for clark county historical society robin white thank you both for doing that and is there one more song to take us out there is i think this is kind of an interesting one this is a, a 14 year old young woman from uh Min, first nations canada uh, her name is uh, Taka Kaya uh, Blaney. I hope I didn't slaughter that. Uh, 14 years old, she sang, uh, I believe, this song at the climate change uh, meeting in France. Uh, and it, on the uh, tribunal on uh, the rights of nature. And I think you'll find it uh, quite extraordinary. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Phil. If you want to turn the world all around, we gotta turn it upside down. Hand in hand, spread the sparks, the bonfire. 
unite to keep alive our way of life to keep alive our way of life we've all gotta unify we've all gotta unify join hands for the future of our land speak the language of practices mother earth won't heal without our bandages our final hour and final measure to save culture that we treasure If you're just tuning in, this is the Media Institute's Nonprofit Hour show, and we were listening to Phil Bussey in conversation with Robin White and Katie Anderson of the Clark County Historical Museum about the upcoming exhibit opening in February, which is titled One November Morning. It's a collection of contemporary art from Native American artists depicting their remembrances of those brutally killed in the 1864 Sand Creek Massacre in Colorado. To find out more about the exhibit, find out how you can support its presentation or become a partner for events, you can contact them on the web at cchmuseum.org. If you'd like to listen to archived episodes of any of our interviews, you can find them all on our SoundCloud page. And as always, if you have a suggestion for a story or organization that you think should be featured on a future show, you can let me know via email to jason.dennington at xray.fm. Next up, we have a conversation between Phil Bussey and Scott Lewis, the executive director of the Northwest Dance Project, about their long history in the Portland dance community, recent growth and successes, and their role in passing on the passion for dance to youth through their outreach and educational programs. Here's Phil. This is Phil Bussey. It's another edition of the Media Institute for Social Changes Nonprofit Hour. I am so happy to be joined in the studio with the with Scott Lewis from the Northwest Dance Project. Hey, Phil. It's good to see you. Me too. You know, I I I love Northwest Dance Project. Mm-hmm. You guys, you guys kick ass. <laughs> That's that is the phrase that goes around the place quite a bit. That's uh, our artistic director Sarah has said that thousands and thousands of times. She's always telling the dancers to kick ass. And yeah, and and so I, I think it's so funny that uh, Sarah Slipper is your artistic <laughs> director. I mean, it yes. seems destined, of course. It's her real name. She used to be, do uh, interviews when she was a ballerina with Winnipeg, and uh, she would always get asked that. But it's her real name. Not the stage name. No. Not the stage name. And, and so you guys have been around for, this is your 11th, 12th year. 12th season, yeah. 12th season. Mm-hmm. Um, why? Why Why do you guys have to exist? <laughs> why? Like, why? Well, now we have to exist because we're totally unhirable. So we have to keep this going so that we're employed. Uh, and we're doing a really magnificent thing, making new pieces of art, new contemporary dance works. So that's what keeps us going. Uh, historically, it started as a kind of a different monster, and it was something where Sarah saw a way to kind of change the whole audition, networking, creation, training experience. So she created this new thing that uh, that hadn't been done before, and she brought artistic directors and choreographers to Portland and also brought a huge group of dancers to Portland, and they just went at it for three weeks, training, networking, creating pieces. We did six pieces in one night at Lincoln Hall, uh, and it just 
spawned from there. So we did that for a few years, and then in 2007, we actually formed our company. So instead of working with all these dancers that would come and go, we picked the best ones that we wanted and, and shifted gears to become a company. Let's do a little bit more background here. So, uh, artistic director Sarah Slipper, she she was a uh, classically trained. Yeah, she was a ballerina for the Royal Winnipeg Ballet for her career. And the, and the reason I sort of put a question mark at the end of classically trained because uh, for those that have gone to Northwest Dance Project, understand, and for those that haven't, should understand, you guys are rooted in in classical, mm-hmm. very. Uh, wonderful, uh, high-achieving level of, of dancers, mm-hmm. but are starting to go a bit postmodern with it, are, are definitely uh, funkier than what you're going to see at the Nutcracker Suite. Yeah, but, but our dancers can do that. They can do the Nutcracker. They can do all that stuff. They have the, the strict ballet training. They take a, an hour-and-a-half ballet class every morning. That's how they start their day. Uh, but then contemporary dance kind of pushes it. It becomes much, much more physical. There's a lot more physical partnering. There's a lot of work on the floor, a lot faster moves, and uh, and grittier. Just the, uh, you know, my thing about ballet, I used to joke, like, you know, the girl runs up to the boy and then runs away from the boy, and in contemporary, the girl just goes and tackles the boy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and sometimes it's the girl tackling the girl or the yeah. boy tackling the boy. Sure. Um, and, and so... Sarah's background makes sense, and what's what's your background? <laughs> Not dance, uh, that's for sure, although apparently I have great feet, uh, but no dance training. I came into it from uh, writing. From, I used to be an arts journalist, and I had mostly been writing about music, but for a while was very steeped in writing about dance. So I uh, got to know James Canfield at Oregon Ballet Theater and his kind of intersection of rock and roll and classical dance, so that was intriguing. Met Sarah through that, and then when she launched the organization in 2004, there were certain things that we needed done. So, you know, PR, writing, it went into grants, administration. So I came at it from that end. So I do a lot of what I do. I do a lot of different things, but very little of it has anything to do with what you see on stage or in the educational programming. But that's a nice team. Yeah, it is. It's worked well. I mean, it would be uh, having two dancers trying to run the organization might be like having two left feet. I don't know about that. And I'm sorry I had to go there. And, and I'm very fortunate that I love Sarah's work. I think the works that she creates for the company are astounding. So that makes it easier, too, to work for that. So can we talk about uh, still staying in, in the first couple years uh, for Northwest Dance Project? What was available for dance and in particular for com- contemporary dance in Portland? Uh, is it was it a robust scene or was it a little bit slim pickings? Mm, I think the the dance scene in Portland has always been pretty robust. Uh, Whitebird was uh, around at that time. I think they're in year 18 now, so they were before us. And they had kind of reestablished a, a big interest in contemporary dance when Portland State University's dance program was on the decline. They kind of came in and had a model as, as a presenter of bringing dance from around the world to Portland. So... The audiences were there. They would go see works that they hadn't seen before, maybe whole companies they hadn't seen before. Uh, There's still obviously Oregon Ballet Theater is around, Bodyvox was around, Conduit was in a, uh, very active at those times, and then a bunch of independent artists that would work on things. So there was an active, active dance scene, uh, I think, locally. And in the initial years, a lot of our, the dancers that we trained and worked with did come locally. It's gotten more national and actually international in the following years, but there was a Oh, and the Jefferson Dancers had a great training program as well. A lot of those dancers, this was a great next step for them. 
And and talk just a little bit about the Jefferson Dance Program because that is something that's very important. It seems mm-hmm. to the uh, defining uh, the the dance culture within Portland. Mm-hmm. It's it's fantastic what those kids can do, and they're, they're the longest running company in the region, uh, and it's amazing. And Sarah. This organization kind of was a follow-up to what she, the work she did with Jefferson Dancers. So she would create works for them, and she was also training a lot of their dancers, many of whom went on to Juilliard and had great careers. Um, and she had an experience where she had worked with the Jefferson Dancers, done a piece, and then she went to go create a piece in New York, uh, working with some more experienced professional dancers, and she was trying to work with them and using some of the same similar material, and they, they said, well, that, that can't be done. And, and, you know, in her head, she's like, but these high school kids just did it three weeks ago, <laughs> and and right, which is fantastic. And and uh, this is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I'm talking to Scott Lewis, who uh, is is you know I don't even know your title with the it, Northwest Dance Project. Well, there's a lot of them. The official one is executive director. Sometimes it's janitor, <laughs> <laughs> and everything in between. Mm-hmm. Um, now, coming into you, you had been on the corner of uh, Mississippi and Shaver. Yeah. For years, beautiful facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, that neighborhood has changed, and you guys, the the wonderful light that mm-hmm. was coming into to your studio mm-hmm. has been blocked out. Yes, on on one half at least, yeah. And and uh, now you have moved uh, to Northeast Tenth and Davis. Yeah, it's a big deal. It is. A, it was a huge deal, and it was kind of a. It was necessary. It was necessary. I mean, we lost the lease on our space in Mississippi, and it just couldn't work there, getting the more space that we needed. And that happened before we actually secured our present space. So we were at PSU for nine months. And I have to give them uh, so much gratitude. They kind of helped us keep going without any interruption. But we found our space, did a big capital campaign, spent months working with architects, the builders, built it all out. And it's a 8,500 square feet facility. It's got two studios. One is humongous. The other one's big. Uh, full office facilities. The dancers have a change room with lockers and a shower. And, and that's about all they need right there. They're happy. They got a shower. It's got laundry and a conference room and a storage room. It's just, it's a full facility. And it allows us to do all the program that we want to do. So with two studios, the company can be working in their studio and we can have classes in the other studio. So we can really get a lot more work done. And, and now Northwest Dance Project owns this building? No, we have a long-term lease. Okay. Yeah, that, that's the next, the next interview. <laughs> <laughs> and, but that's really exciting. I mean, that's... that's um... Has that been been a big leap forward also in terms of services that you're providing or are you providing generally the same services but in more space? Uh, Great. The same services but on a larger scale. Uh, So as I mentioned, since we have two studios, we've been able to increase our educational classes for youth and adults. So we're we're offering more classes. Uh, The other great thing that is, is going on with this space is that we can make it available to other groups. So people who need rehearsal space, working on smaller projects, they don't have their own space, they can come to us and we can provide that space for them. And we can do some of our outreach activities and that program has been going strong since 2007 and we now have a dedicated director of that uh, where we go out to the schools or s- service agencies that serve kids, at-risk kids, we can now bring them to the studio and that's a different experience for them. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and you brought some some music from some of your shows in to share today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of looked over our long history. I mean, we have done over 175 works in 12 years, so there's a, a lot to choose from. But I I wanted to start with uh, a piece that I've always that's all dear to my heart that uh, Sarah Slipper created. It's called uh, Flying E, 
And in 2009, we went down to Arizona for a week and lived on a ranch, like a, a dude ranch. Uh, and they created a piece. And so Sarah was very inspired by the, the desert and it, the, the piece reflected that. So uh, the, the song is really cool. I love female vocalists and that fits, this fits that bill. It's uh, from Fever Ray and it's called Keep the Streets Empty for Me. And uh, it went with Sarah Slipper's Flying E from 2009. Let's take a listen. Phil Bussey, it's the Nonprofit Hour. I'm talking with the executive director from Northwest Dance Project, Scott Lewis. And and again, we just listened to, uh, what song was that? It was called Keep the Streets Empty for Me from a band called Fever Ray. And that was part of a performance. Um, how much does, and I know you're not the artistic director, but how much does the music follow the dance or the dance follow the music? It's really up to each choreographer. There are some that, that arrive uh, with their music ready to go, and that's going to inform the dance. Uh, other people, it's not so important. There are some choreographers, famously and historically, who will switch the music at performance time. Uh, but I think for this, the majority of the stuff that we do, there's, there's definitely a musicality to the movement, so it's, it's in sync with it. I wanted to just, let's, let's just get sort of the parameters of uh, the, the Northwest uh, Dance Project. Who are the dancers? You have, is it a, nine dancers? Currently we have nine. We, we should be at 10, so we're looking for another dancer, but we move very slowly and intentionally. Uh, all of our dancers have to come work in a project that we do that's uh, a carryover from our very first days of that training program that we call Launch, and it allows us to see them over two weeks, so they have to do that. Uh, currently we're at nine dancers. There's a few that are local. There's a few that are from far away. Uh, they range in age, I think, from 23 to 34. Uh, currently we have uh, five women and four men. Sarah would really like to have it balanced, have five and five. Uh, but men are harder to get than, than women in, in the dance field. Uh, they're exceptionally trained. Uh, like you mentioned, they're all classically trained, but they can do a lot more. And four of them, of the nine, have won this incredible award called the Princess Grace Award. It's given to six dancers in the country nationally each year. Uh, and we had winners starting in 2010 and up to this last year. 
let's not let's not just rush right past the Princess Grace Award. Mm-hmm. It's a big deal. Can you can you uh, can you give us a little bit of context of what it's like? I mean, this is the Academy Awards it of, is. of it dance. Is. This is this is what will sit on a dance the top of a dancer's resume forever. This is the crowning achievement for a young dancer in this country. Uh, pun intended for Princess Grace. Uh, and every every time we've had a winner four times now, we've put tiaras uh, either on them or their photos in the in the studio just to have a little fun with it. But uh, yeah, it's given to six dancers every year in the country, uh, whether they be at schools or in companies, and the award goes to support them. So the idea is that this young dancer, this exceptional dancer, is thriving in their environment, and this foundation wants to support that. Uh, so they get the award. The organization gets the money that goes back to the dancer through either tuition or, in our case, salary. And that's incredible. I mean, so the math on this is pretty amazing then. Well, to, to, to have four dancers. Yeah, yeah even, to have, even to have one. I mean, if, if you think about it, every school and every company wants this award because it just takes that student or that company member and takes care of them financially for a year. So it's great. I mean, it's a great award to get. And the prestige is amazing. So there's lots of interest in this award. And we first won in 2010 with Andrea Parson, and we're you know over the moon. Then Franco Nieto won in 2012. We couldn't believe it. Uh, here's this incredible organization in New York looking at this little contemporary company in Portland. Then Victor Usoff won in 2014, and that was pretty astounding. Uh, and we didn't think that we would have a chance the very next year, but we nominated Ching Ching Wong, and she won in 2015. Uh, and that was before our, our ninth dancer joined us. So it, for, a, for a brief moment, half of our company had won this in, incredible, incredible award. I mean, it's right. So lightning has struck four times. <laughs> yeah, <That's>... good lightning. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. But, but it is interesting. I mean, you, you, you mentioned like, you know, you're putting tiaras on, on these dancers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be seen that once they have that award, why are the, you know, that they, they, they could use that for a springboard into... Mm-hmm. Uh, a bigger company or maybe go to New York or, uh, mm. you know, some sort of career move mm-hmm. with that. Yet mm-hmm. all four have stayed with the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's not because I'm so wonderful a boss. Uh, yeah, it could be. It's an incredible cachet for a dancer to bring that with them. And it, it speaks a lot. I think uh, we're very fortunate and I'm very happy to have them all with us. Uh, I think there's a few reasons for that. The first and foremost being possibly that we do so much new creation. That's kind of the pinnacle of what an artist wants to do. If you're an actor, having an original role created on you is the be-all, end-all of your artistic pursuit. And so our dancers are getting that constantly. They're constantly getting new work set on them. So it's very rewarding for them artistically. Uh, So they enjoy that. There's not a lot of contemporary companies out there that do original works. So the the field, uh, most of our dancers aren't interested in joining the ballet. They're just not interested in that. So there's a limited number of companies that are really doing the work that fills them up. And then the third is Portland uh, and and the organization. It's an incredible place to be, and I think we're doing really amazing work. And I just got them a shower, so why would they leave? (laughs) And and Northwest Dance Project and these individual dancers are again they're they're very specific very different than uh unique i would say niche that they're filling is that do you, do you agree with that yeah yeah they have it's i mean they have to have you know incredible technique but they also have to be daring and fearless and since we only do original works they have to be able to participate in that creative process it's not always the case uh, or very rarely the case that the choreographer comes and has every single step mapped out for the new creation that they want to do. 
when you're creating a piece, it's made in a lot in conjunction with the dancers. And our dancers have to be able to communicate with the choreographers about what feels right for them and what what fits the movement. And so they are actively engaged. So they can't be they can't just sit in the back and be quiet and be told what to do. They have to engage in the process. Yeah. And, and an important part of that is, is your upcoming December show, right, in, in this company. In good company. In good company. In good company. <laughs> I should know that. I've gone the last few yeah. years. It's a fantastic show. Yeah. And, and so this is the dancers are actually, each one choreographs his or her, her own dance number. Yeah. Yeah, so we turn the tables and we, since they do so much creation, we give them the chance to create on, on each other and sometimes on themselves. So they, pick, they, they get together and they not only create the individual pieces, but they come up with some type of theme for the show. So last year was kind of a in-office mad, uh, Mad Men theme, uh, and it all revolved around that, and the music fit that era as well. So they, and it was held in it, office space of yeah, sorts. Yeah, in, in the Vestas building. It was pretty cool. Uh, so they always put a special spin on it, and it's always uh, it's really great for families. It's always upbeat. It's light. It's it's a we sometimes call it our unholiday holiday show. It happens around the holidays, but very rarely uh, involves much holiday cheer. Yeah, it, it's often though very. Um, if I had to have two words, I'd describe it: sexy and funny. That's good. I'll take that. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a certain <laughs> amount of um, humor. Mm-hmm. That I see, I, I see in Northwest Dance Projects dances at times, and and humor not meaning we're not talking like pratfalls right. here, but yeah. but a certain um, uh, cheekiness mm-hmm. to some of the numbers. Oh, some whimsy. Yes, a whimsy, <laughs> a whimsy, um, and and then the rest of the year, uh, there's four shows locally each year. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. We uh, we do four shows. We do New Now Wow in, in October. Um, that's usually new creations, kind of more up-and-coming choreographers, our, our quote-unquote our edgier show. Uh, then the In Good Company, which will be at Revolution Hall coming up, and that we're excited to go in that new venue. That'll be cool. Uh, and then when in the spring, we do a show at the Newmark Theater. That's our biggest show of the year. Some of our more established work, some of our bigger-name choreographers. And then we do a show every summer called Summer Splendors. And last year, we did it with Chamber Music Northwest and took Chopin's 24 Preludes and broke them up into four sections. Uh, and that show had a lot of humor, and it was really interesting to see Chopin's music with the four different choreographers working. Uh, so that's always another kind of usually fun show. I mean, this dance it should be fun sometimes. It can't always be so dramatic and dark at times. <laughs> and and you guys take this on the road as well. Yeah, we tour a lot. Uh, interesting, we, a while ago we were in Mongolia. We got invited by the U.S. State Department to travel to Mongolia to do a show and an artistic exchange. So that's been the most exotic travel. But uh, we're going to New York in, in January and doing a piece there from uh, Isan Rustam, our resident choreographer. Then we'll go to Colorado and we're in Salt Lake City too. That's great. And and um, how are, so this is a full-time job for the dancers then? Yeah, yeah, they're on contract uh, full-time. They're salaried employees. We just instituted uh, in, employer paid health insurance and health dental and vision insurance so they're all 100 percent covered they're on salary they're contracted anywhere from 35 to 40 weeks just depending on what they're doing and then a lot of them teach for us as well so they have additional hours i mean that's great how, how unique is that uh in in portland or in the northwest or even on the west coast to have uh, a group this i mean of Currently nine, but at we'll be at ten dancers hopefully soon. Mm-hmm. Um, how unique is that? That's a, that's a big group. It's a big group, and I would say that most dance organizations of this size and certainly larger, uh, they are generally employees. Uh, the health insurance is is a, 
a case by case issue. Um, but at, at this level, they, they kind of have to be employees, really. We tell them we need you to be here at 930 in the morning and you're staying till 630 at night, Monday through Friday. So they're employees. So to, you know, be in compliance with the law, they really need to be on the payroll and having their taxes withheld and all that stuff. Yes. I mean, but you're essentially you're running a small company. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a business. It's uh, I mean, that's, you know, nonprofits are businesses. They're not the best businesses, but they <laughs> they are businesses. <laughs> I'm talking with Scott Lewis, who's the executive director for Northwest Dance Project. Um, Scott, how about another song from one of your one of your numbers, one of the Northwest Dance Project's numbers? Yeah, this is a song called Lima Luna from uh, artist Paul Rogers, not not that Paul Rogers, uh, and a good friend and choreographer who's a Chinese and Canadian named Wen Wei Wang uh, used this for a piece he did in 2002 called Conjugations. Wonderful. Lima Luna uh, by Paul Rogers. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Media Institute for Social Changes Nonprofit Hour. I am talking to the executive director of the Northwest Dance Project, Scott Lewis. Scott, let's talk a little bit about, because this is the Nonprofit Hour, about why, why, why be a nonprofit? I mean, why, why not just be a, a business and you have ticket sales and you, you run your education programs? What is it about being a nonprofit that, that makes uh, Northwest Dance Project viable? It allows us to stay alive while constantly losing money. So, I mean, that is the long and the short of it. I mean, nonprofits, the work that they do, there's an understanding that the money that they, their earned income that they bring in uh, just isn't enough to cover the services they provide in the community. So they can be a charity, and they can that opens up a lot of different revenue streams. You know, most importantly are individual donations. Those are the backbone of any nonprofit and certainly the performing arts. Uh, and then also grants, government foundation grants. Uh, and the last category, which should be a lot better than it is in this region, is corporate support. It allows corporations to support you and get a tax benefit from that. We need more corporate support in this region. It's really kind of embarrassing. Uh, but it allows us to you know, subsidize ourselves so that we can continue to do the work. A lot of the work that we do brings in no money at all. Uh, our outreach programs, free performances, uh, shows lose money. I mean, 
about 25% of the cost of doing any major show are covered by ticket sales. And it just wouldn't be viable if we were charging $200 a ticket. You know, we're not Neil Young. Um, so it allows donations to come in and, and kind of pick up that slack. And although, you know, you guys had, uh, I forget the one of your dancers did, for uh, In Good Company did use the Neil Young <laughs> uh, old man. Yeah. That was one of yeah. my favorite performances <laughs> in that, like, I believe they were simultaneously having somebody play the song mm -hmm. while then the recording came over. So you had mm -hmm. this sort of discordant mm -hmm. harmonization going on. It was such a wonderful number that, that two, three years later, it still sticks with mm -hmm. me. Yeah, it's funny how you can hear a song and the visuals that you experience with that stay with you. I, I have a lot of that. That piece was done by Franco Nieto, one of our Princess Grace Award winners. And the, the banjo player was the daughter of one of our teachers. Keeping it in the family. Keeping it all in the family and in the company. And so let's let's talk a little bit more about this outreach program. So you, you're working with a, a number of uh, programs that, that work with uh, at-risk youth, uh, Kinship House, Rosemary Anderson High School, Alberta Elementary. Um, what is it that the students are getting out of this? Uh, hopefully what exactly what they need. So we take a lot of time in working with each partner organizations to determine what their population is like maybe what they're studying in school, if they want something to tie into curriculum, what the kids' kind of background are, where they're at. And we try to develop a program for that specific agency that will bring dance to them uh, in a way that is engaging and may back up a curriculum activity. So it, it just, it really changes. So Rosemary Anderson High School came to us and they wanted to do a hip-hop routine for the school talent show. And it was really led by this one incredible kid, uh, so they came in and they worked with one of our dancers, Ching Ching Wong, over a number of weeks in the studio and developed this routine. Uh, at the time of performance, everybody but the one really enthusiastic kid dropped out. He did it himself anyway on stage and won the, the talent competition, which was really, really cool. And, and Ching was there to see that. So that's, that was a very specific, they had a very specific goal. So we built a program that would help them with that. So it's really just what the kids or the providers kind of want. But we like to do it over a long term, like six to eight weeks or a whole term of school and go in there on a consistent basis. And oftentimes we're working with the kids to develop a routine that they can then perform at the end of the, of the program. We think that dance participation is much more valuable than just dance observation in creating you know, fans. Most people who are, are engaged in the arts do so because they did as a child. Um, I mean, I remember in fifth grade, I got bust in to go see the Nutcracker. That's all well and good and it was great. But it didn't, that's not why I'm into dance at all. But we find that if you get the kids dancing themselves, there's a ton of benefits. Uh, and one of those is interest in the arts. I'd also think there has to be a real uh, profound benefit to the dancers of your company themselves in terms of uh, if you can teach something, you tend to be more knowledgeable mm -hmm. and better at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it, def it definitely boosts their confidence. It gives them a whole new perspective. Uh, and also when they get to when they get to choreograph and create their own show, then they get to become almost like choreographers and producers. And then Sarah gets to say, see, see what it's like. It's pretty hard, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, and there are additional training programs as well that Northwest Dance Project offers, correct? Yeah, we do tons of community classes. So adults can come in and take ballet or jazz or hip hop or some conditioning classes. And we have a very robust program for youth. Uh, they can do jazz and ballet. Later, they can do hip hop. And we have a youth training program that really focuses them on getting into either companies or college programs or conservatories that's really geared towards the professional track dancer. Um, 
Great. And, and going forward, what I, I know that that's maybe not a fair question to ask of Northwest Dance Project right now because you guys just did a huge leap forward. But uh, anything more that we should be expecting or what should we be on the lookout for? I think it's going to hold steady for a while. I mean, we'll get a 10th dancer. Uh, probably locally, we're probably doing about as much as we can uh, as far as performances uh, and classes and education. Touring is, is always of interest. We love going over to Europe. We've been to Germany and London, so we'll probably uh, get out of town more. Uh, and then 10 years down the line, those the, I just I have to keep the, those plans in my head or I'll scare people. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Lewis, the executive director from Northwest Dance Project. How about uh, setting up one more song for us here? Sure. I definitely wanted to include a piece of music that was used by our resident choreographer, Isan uh, Rustam. And he did a piece for us called uh, Mother Tongue in 2012. And the track is called Weightless from Erica Janunger. Scott Lewis, thank you so much for talking with us. Scott Lewis is the executive director for Northwest Dance Project, and you should be on the lookout for them. Uh, In Good Company is their winter show at Revolution Hall this year. It's truly, truly is a fun, wonderful event. Uh, the individual dancers are choreographing in each of the dance numbers themselves. It is, yeah. is such a... If you do not already know the Northwest Dance Project, it's a great way to get to know them. Mm -hmm. And if you already do, um, I'm probably already speaking to the to the choir here. <laughs> well, thanks, Phil, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back for that show. Absolutely. Great. Thank you. Thanks. I get no sleep when you're around. Can't put my thoughts back on the ground. I panic when I die. By daybreak, wondering was this just a big mistake? We got no wisdom in return.
Come to the end of this week's Nonprofit Hour show. The show has been produced and edited by myself, Jason Dennington, and is recorded at the production studios of X-Ray FM. You can follow us on Facebook or via our Twitter handle, at Nonprofit Hour, and find archives of past shows on our SoundCloud page. We'd like to thank our guests on the show this week, Robin White and Katie Anderson of the Clark County Historic Museum, who joined us to talk about the upcoming exhibit one November morning that will be opening in February, and Scott Lewis of the Northwest Dance Project. To support these organizations or find out more about their upcoming events, you can reach them on the web at cchmuseum.org or nwdanceproject.org. We'd also like to thank the Media Institute for Social Change. Our regular hosts, Phil Bussey and Julie Falk, KXRY Radio X-Ray FM, and most of all, to you, our regular listeners. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you have a great week and join us again next week at noon on Monday for the Nonprofit Hour Show.